0: Listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church. Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy him forever.
1: 1 Samuel chapter 1 verses uh, 2, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 1 through to chapter 2 verse 11. Let's hear God's word. There's a certain man of Ramathim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. for all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, "Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him." And she said, "Let your servant find favor in your eyes." And the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. <coughs> they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, "I have asked him; I have asked for him from the Lord." The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow, but Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband. As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephra of flour, and a skin of wine... And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said my heart exalts in the lord my strength is exalted in the lord my mouth derides my enemies because i rejoice in your salvation there is none holy like the lord there is none besides you there is no rock like our god talk no more so very proudly let not arrogance come from your mouth for the lord is a god of knowledge and by him actions are weighed the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Amen. This is God's words. Well, here at Trinity, we're beginning today a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. The plan is for us to work through 1 Samuel over the next year in three parts, because the book itself naturally breaks down into three parts that revolve around three main characters, a man named Samuel, a man named Saul, and then a man named David. So over the next couple of months, we're going to make our way through chapters 1 to 7, which focus mainly on Samuel, and then we'll take a break from 1 Samuel and we'll come back to it later in the spring, because that's the plan. But when it comes to understanding the context for 1 and 2 Samuel, it's helpful to recognise that these two books, as we have them in our Bibles, it's really just one book, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, belongs to a group of Old Testament books that record the history of God's people. In particular, the history of God's people when God's people lived in the Promised Land. There are four books that record this history for us. Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, one and two kings in the book of Joshua that comes first God's people the people whom he chose to be his people who he brought out of slavery in Egypt and made a covenant with the people of Israel they conquer and settle in the land that God had promised to bring them into but by the end of the final book in this group of four history books by the end of two kings God's people are exiled from the promised land because they were unfaithful to the covenant God had established with them In the book of Joshua, we read of people occupying the land. In the book of Kings, we read of people being exiled from the land. And the two books in between these two events, Judges and 1 and 2 Samuel, tell us about how Israel lived in the promised land prior to being exiled. Now, uh, all of that is simply to help us get our bearings when it comes to the context for what takes place in 1 and 2 Samuel. But what is 1 and 2 Samuel all about? In a nutshell, what takes place in 1 and 2 Samuel all revolves around God's Old Testament people, the people of Israel, becoming, in a sense, a monarchy. Uh, That is to say, prior to 1 and 2 Samuel, the people of Israel had been established as a nation. Uh, When God brought the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt and made a covenant with them in the book of Exodus, God formally constituted Israel as a nation rather than a family Israel existed then before 1 and 2 Samuel as a nation, but it wasn't until the events of 1 and 2 Samuel that Israel became a monarchy, a nation governed by kings. All of which helps us to see that 1 Samuel is all about the king. It is all about God establishing his kingdom and appointing his king to rule it. And he instructs. Samuel, first of all, to anoint Saul as king and then to anoint David as king. Beyond this, 1 Samuel is all about what it means to accept that God himself is the ultimate king, the one who sits enthroned above Saul and David and every other earthly king. 1 Samuel is concerned with hugely significant subjects then. It's about a kingdom. It's about God's kingdom. It's about establishing the rightful king on the throne. But the book begins not with royalty... Not with hugely influential and authoritative people, but with one Israelite woman who is unable to have children. Why does the book begin there? Why does it begin with Hannah, Elkanah's wife? Well, to answer that question, we need to look at three things. We need to look at Hannah's problem, Hannah's prayer, and Hannah's people. Firstly, Hannah's problem. Hannah's problem wasn't her husband Elkanah. We're told in verse 1 that he was of good stock. He had a good family heritage, which suggests that he was a relatively wealthy man. Certainly wealthy enough to provide for two wives, at least. We're told in verse 2 that Hannah wasn't his only wife. He had two. The other was named Peninnah. But Hannah's husband was of good stock, and he was financially stable. He was also serious about worshipping God. Read in verse 3. Every year he would travel from his city to worship the Lord at Shiloh, where God's appointed priests ministered, where they offered the sacrifices that his people brought. He was serious, too, about leading and guiding his family in worshipping God rightly. Read in verse 4 that he provided sacrifices for Peninnah and her children and for Hannah, too. As much as he was mistaken, as many were during his time in thinking that it was permissible to have more than one wife, and even though... Uh, perhaps he wasn't as sensitive to Hannah's heartache as he might have been in verse 8. It was still the case that he loved Hannah. And we're, told that much, we're told that exactly in verse 5. Uh, and his love for her did not depend upon her providing children for him. Which was significant in Hannah's case because that was precisely her problem. She had no children. At the closing words of the opening paragraph, for the end of verse 3, they're sobering. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Hannah's childlessness, that was the problem. And it was a problem that was compounded by the fact that her husband's other wife did have children. Several of them, it seems. Peninnah had sons and daughters, we're told, at the end of verse 4. You can imagine the trip to Shiloh for the annual sacrifices that Elkanah's household would make. They take a break in the journey for a meal. Peninnah's feeding her children. And Hannah just knows from the way that Elkanah is looking at her that something's coming. And sure enough, Peninnah announces, we've got some news, Hannah. And Hannah's heart sinks again. And she wants to be happy for Peninnah and especially for her husband Elkanah, but maybe you know the feeling all too well. Perhaps your problem is not quite Hannah's problem. Yet another of your friends announces their engagement. And you truly want to be happy for them, but perhaps to a less painful extent, yet another of your friends announces their new job, their new promotion. You want your friends to do well and you truly want to be happy for them, but it only compares the frustration that you feel in your job. And to make matters worse for Hannah, Peninnah was not going about these things sensitively. Quite the opposite, in fact. In verse 6, we're told that she would intentionally provoke Hannah, even grievously, we read. So much so that the author of 1 Samuel feels justified in referring to Peninnah as Hannah's rival. In verse 7, we find out that that didn't only last for a short time, because the same thing would happen year after year on the journey to Shiloh. What was the problem that faced Hannah? It was her inability to fall pregnant, to bear children, to bear the children of her loving husband. This, combined with the cruel taunts of her rival, Peninnah, it just wore her down. It wearied her, it broke her. And the result of this heartache we read in verse 7 is that Hannah wept and would not eat. The poignant words of Psalm forty two, they, they could have been Hannah's words. My tears have been my food day and night. What do you do when you're at rock bottom? What do you do when you're at what feels like your lowest point? When your strength has gone, you feel like you're in a completely hopeless place. Well, Hannah prayed might not sound revolutionary it's not a solution that's going to become the basis of the next best-selling self-improvement book but in Hannah's case it was significant and so the beginning of 1 Samuel invites us to reflect not only on Hannah's problem but also secondly on Hannah's prayer we're first told about Hannah's prayer in verse 10 she's at the temple where God's people would gather to worship him and we're told that she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly there was a bitterness in her tears and yet there was a distinct lack of bitterness in her prayer look down at the words of her initial prayer in verse 11 and she vowed a vow and said O Lord of hosts if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head What is striking about this prayer is not so much its content. Hannah asks the Lord to grant her a son and vows that if she's granted a son, then she'll bring him to the temple to serve the Lord as one of his official servants. There's nothing surprising about that prayer being prayed by a woman who's desperately longing for a child of her own. But what is striking is the tone of her prayer. Hannah desperately longs for a child, but... The tone of her prayer reveals that she knows she's not entitled to the thing that she desires. There is no sense of entitlement in her prayer. Even as she sees her husband's other wife falling pregnant and giving birth, and falling pregnant and giving birth, she doesn't begin to adopt the mentality that God somehow owes her. Even when she sees those around her enjoying the very thing she so intensely desires... She doesn't believe that she somehow deserves to enjoy the same. And you know, this, this lack of sense of entitlement is something of a rarity. How often do you and I feel as though we're entitled to have something simply because we want it? Simply because someone else has it? Simply because it exists? To people like us who often live as though we're entitled and deserve to enjoy whatever we want, Hannah's recognition here in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that she is not owed anything ought to be an example to us when it comes to our attitude towards life. So what was Hannah's secret? How did she manage to at the same time desire, intensely desire something which is good... And yet not become bitter as a result of the absence of that very thing that she longed for. When your tears are bitter, how do you avoid becoming bitter yourself? What was underlying the absence of bitterness in Hannah's prayer? Well, in a sentence, what kept Hannah from becoming bitter in the midst of her heartache was an understanding of the sweetness of the God she prayed to. Underlying Hannah's initial prayer are certain assumptions about God. That is to say, Hannah assumes certain things about the God she prays to. You know, that's true of every one of us. When we come to pray to God, the words that we use, the tone of our prayers, they reveal what we believe about God. And in Hannah's case, her prayer, it reveals certain beliefs that she held. So her prayer in verse 11 reveals that she believes that God is able to provide what she desires. As she prays, she's not venting at God as she reflects on being, able to fall, being unable to fall pregnant. She isn't merely asking God to help her deal with her circumstances. She asks him to grant her a son. If you will give your servant a son, she prays. She recognises that God is ultimately the one who determines... Every one of our situations. She believes that even the heartaches we experience are ultimately ordained by him. Her lack of children is not merely down to her biology. It's not a result of fate or chance. But she believes to be true what we are told by the author back in verse 5 and verse 6. The Lord had closed her womb. Friends, this is an important lesson for us to learn and for us to relearn. Even the most heartbreaking circumstances you encounter, whatever difficulty you might face, the reason you encounter all that you encounter is because the God who is in control of everything, the Lord of hosts, as Hannah addresses him, he has ordained it. He ultimately is the one who sends every trial we face. For Hannah the title of this chapter of her life was The Lord Had Closed Her Womb. And in the same way, the title of every chapter of our lives begins The Lord... Dot, dot, dot. However challenging the chapter, however heartbreaking the circumstances, the Lord is behind it. That in itself... However, it's not enough to keep a person from becoming bitter about the circumstances that the Lord has granted them. It's not enough that we know that the Lord is behind every difficulty that we face. We need to know something else about him. And this is not the only thing that Hannah assumes about God in her prayer. Because the very fact that she is praying to him in her current state, wearied and weeping, Reveals that she also believes that this God who is able to give and able to withhold, he is also a God who cares. We see this in the content of her prayer in verse 11. She addresses God as the Lord of hosts, that is to say, the one who commands every army, heavenly and earthly, the one with every resource in the universe at his disposal. And yet she then has no hesitation in bringing her own difficulty before him. What we might think is a very minor matter in the context of the entire universe, what we might think is completely unimportant to the Lord of hosts, Hannah views as something that he cares deeply about. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Hannah assumes that God is concerned about her affliction. He cares. We see it not only in the content of her prayer, but the context of her prayer too. Already seen in verse 7, before she prays at the temple, she, she wept and she would not eat. We're told in verse 12 that as she continues praying at the temple, she's praying silently in her heart. Eli, the elderly priest, he sees her moving her lips and yet he hears no words and he assumes that she's drunk too much wine. Hannah replies to him in verse 15 to say that she hasn't been pouring the wine, but she is pouring out her soul before the Lord. She describes herself as a woman who is troubled in spirit, as one who has been speaking out of her great anxiety and vexation. Troubled, anxious, perplexed. A wearied, weeping, afflicted woman. And she's praying because she assumes that the Lord cares about the troubled, the anxious, the perplexed. He's far from indifferent to the wearied and weeping. And so at her lowest point, she is knocking at his door because she knows what he's like. Perhaps she knows because she was familiar with the words of Exodus two twenty-three to 25. When, when God's people were enslaved in Egypt, we're told that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, Hannah prayed. She believes that she worships a God who sees, a God who knows God who cares. She believes that she worships a God who does not turn away those who come to him with tears running down their cheeks as though he only accepts the prayers of the strong. But she worships a God who welcomes us in our weakness. Hannah wouldn't have been familiar with the words of Psalm 6 but she was familiar with the reality that Psalm 6 describes. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. She was familiar with the reality behind these words. She was familiar with the God presented by those words. The God who hears the sound of our weeping. The God who somehow accepts the tear-soaked pillows of his people as prayers in their own right. Hannah believed that God cares. She believed the truth. And don't for a moment believe the lie that he doesn't. I once heard some leadership advice that stuck with me. People will put up with a lot if they know that you care, the advice goes. And those of us who are given leadership responsibilities in different places, in our families, in our workplaces, in the church, and those of us who are called to follow. Leadership will have a much easier time doing so if we know that those who are leading care. When a tough call needs to be made, when there's going to be uncomfortable implications as a result of a leadership decision, people will more readily follow if they know that the one leading cares for them. People will put up with a lot if they know that you care. Friend, since we know that our ultimate leader, the Lord of hosts, the great leader of his people, cares deeply for us. We ought to bear with the circumstances we face. The one who has brought you into a particular trial that you face is the same one who cares for you in it. His intentions are only good. We need to follow Hannah's example Bring your prayer before him. Bring your tear-soaked pillow before him. Believe that he is in control. Believe that he cares. Because he does. That's Hannah's prayer in light of her problem. And in light of her problem and her prayer, God grants her a son. But interestingly, even before the news of Hannah's pregnancy breaks in Elkanah's household... Long before she started to show, God had also granted Hannah peace. Verse 17, the elderly Eli, the priest, realises that Hannah wasn't drunk and he blesses her. Go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him, he says. And as she leaves the temple, we're told at the end of verse 18, her face was no longer sad. Nothing had changed. But everything had changed. Hannah was still in an apparently hopeless place. But she knew the one who brought her there. And that was enough. Hannah's problem, Hannah's prayer. Thirdly and finally, Hannah's people. Verse 19. We're told that the Lord remembered Hannah long after she had left the temple... And in verse 20, the news breaks. She conceives, gives birth to a son whom she names Samuel, meaning I've asked of him from the Lord. And this son is a gift not only for Hannah, but for Hannah's people, God's people. Once he's weaned, which might well have been three years later, Hannah brings him to the temple. She makes her sacrifices and then she says to elderly Eli, I'm that woman who was here years ago standing in this very spot praying for a son and here he is and he belongs to the lord and she enrolls samuel in his temple servant training program ministering to the lord for the sake of the lord's people samuel is dedicated to the lord and he is a gift to his people to hannah's people and he's a gift to the Lord's people, not because of Hannah's vow to dedicate him to the Lord and her noble keeping of that vow encouraged by Elkanah. That Samuel isn't a gift to the Lord's people because Hannah gave him. But he's a gift to the Lord's people because the Lord gave him. And Hannah understands this herself to be the case. In the speech that she gives to Eli when she brings Samuel to the temple, she doesn't draw attention to her vow There's no hint that Hannah is somehow proud of the thing that she's doing for God. But she simply draws attention to what God has done. The Lord has granted me my petition I made to him. The only thing in herself that Hannah brings up is her asking. One commentator named Dale Ralph Davis, he points out that in verses 27 and 28, Hannah uses the Hebrew word to ask. Four times. And he tries to bring out the emphasis of it by translating her speech in verse 27 and 28 like this For this child I prayed, and the Lord gave me my asking, which I asked from him. And I also have given back that was asked to, to the Lord. All the days he lives, he is the one that is asked for uh, of the Lord. It's as though Hannah finds her role in the whole thing entirely secondary to God's role. All I did was ask, Hannah declares. God is the one who gave. Which is, in a sense, the declaration of all Hannah's people, of all the Lord's people. All we did was ask. When we recognised our great weakness and we saw that we have no ability in ourselves to bring life. When we realised our sorry state as sinful human beings before a holy God. And we arrived at the point of confessing our sin to him and asking that he would grant us mercy. All we did was ask. As we look to God in faith. Faith which he himself gave us. He is the one who gives life. Our role is so secondary, it barely warrants highlighting. Hannah understands it. And it's the reason that she is so ready to praise God in her prayer of chapter 2. And yet, Samuel's birth brings God's action even further into focus here. Because his birth and Hannah's experience belong to a collection of remarkable births Brought about by God throughout the Bible In the book of Genesis The birth of Isaac when it seemed impossible That Sarah would bear a child in her old old age The birth of Jacob to Rebecca When she and Isaac had likely celebrated Their 20th wedding anniversary Before she fell pregnant for the first time the birth of Joseph to Rachel who'd faced similar circumstances to Hannah. In the book of Judges we read that Samson's mother prior to his birth was unable to have any children. In the New Testament John the Baptist is born of Elizabeth when she was apparently well beyond the age for falling pregnant and of course the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ born of the Virgin Mary. In the Bible these remarkable births children born of women who are unable to bring life into the world themselves they're significant each one highlights that God is doing something in particular they each highlight that God is raising up deliverers for his people men through whom he will bring about his great redemption as they work to preserve and protect and deliver God's people which culminates of course With the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom God brings life in all its fullness. Because in places void of life and the ability to change that fact, God brings life. That is Hannah's story. And it is the story of Hannah's people. The story of all God's people. Which is why Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, it begins with how God delivered Hannah and it ends with how God delivers all his people. As we read in verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Why does 1 and 2 Samuel begin here? Why does a book, which is all about the kingdom and the rightful king, begin with one troubled Israelite woman all too aware of her own inability. Because from our perspective that's where God begins. Friends, belonging to Hannah's people, to God's people is a great privilege. To be a Christian is to have been granted life when it seemed like life was impossible. It doesn't always seem like it is such a privilege to us. Our family members, our friends who don't share our faith, they don't view it as a privilege. To them, the church, God's people, it might seem like a hopeless place, just as Hannah's womb seemed to Peninnah. But it's here that God grants life. And our true home is among his people. Together we are cared for by him. He will guard our feet. And one day he will remove all our enemies. Hannah knew that. And it meant that in the midst of her trials she knew peace. And when she was brought through her trial... She knew who to praise. And those who belong to Hannah's people ought to discover the same experience. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we praise you for your glorious deliverance of your people. When it seemed entirely hopeless when it seemed like the only thing on the horizon was death, you in your grace have brought life. We praise you for our great deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that our experience would be that of Hannah's, that we would be brought through all the trials of this life and brought to praise you, ultimately praising you before your throne. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: listening to the Trinity Church Chester sermon podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the connect page on our website trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.